Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Christina Wallace calls herself a human Venn diagram. She has crafted a career at the intersection of business technology and the arts. Currently, she's a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where she teaches entrepreneurship and marketing. And her latest book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card, comes out April 18th, which is my book birthday too. (laughs) Christina, welcome to Leave Your Mark. I love that we share a launch day together. Thank you. I just love everything that you have been working on. And I've been following you as you've been writing and getting on brand out into the world. And I just, it feels like kismet that we have the same book birthday. Thank you so much. Well, I've been following everything you're doing too. And for everyone listening, Christina is also a serial entrepreneur. She has built businesses in e-commerce, ed tech, and media. She's co-authored a previous book called New to Big, How Companies Can Create Like Entrepreneurs, Invest Like VCs, and Install a Permanent Operating System for Growth. And also, Christina, you were the co-host of The Limit Does Not Exist, an iHeartRadio podcast with millions of downloads and over three seasons. And you have like some interesting hobbies too. I do. You sing with flavor choirs. You're like an Mm -hmm. adventure travel person. Maybe not the best athlete. (laughs) I try hard, though. <laughs> Listen, I don't try at all, so we're different that way. <laughs> and Mashable called you one of the 44 female founders to know, and Refinery named you one of the most powerful women in New York City tech. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I have been following your work for a long time. You're someone who is extremely smart, extremely pointed in how you approach the work that you do. Hmm. And I'm really excited to dig into where you are today in this new book. So first, give us a quick background on where you grew up. I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I am a seventh generation Michigander. My family has been Michigander since before it was a state and roughly stayed within like the same 30 mile radius. They were farmers. And then my grandfather built cars on the General Motors assembly line for 40 some years. Wow. And it was a big deal when I left and said, I'm not coming back. And you chose Cambridge. Eventually, yes. I mean, I've made my way. I went to college in Atlanta. Then I moved to New York to work in opera. Then I went to business school in Cambridge and then down to D.C. for a hot second. Long enough to get a 202 area code that I have now stuck with. Oh, wow. 
Everyone thinks the government is calling when I called them the first time. Uh, and then came back to New York, which is where I lived for 12, 13 years building startups before Harvard called and said, do you want to come join the faculty? So now I call Cambridge home. But I like to say I'm a citizen of the Northeast Corridor on the Amtrak line. Okay. Okay. I'm down for that. So this book, mm-hmm. The Portfolio Life, why this book right now? Partially, I wrote this book as a completely self-serving effort in two ways. Number one, I, as you started with my intro, describe myself as a human Venn diagram. I've been trying to help others make sense of my life since I was in, I don't know, middle school. And I figured the best way to legitimize what I'm doing is to give it a name and then write a book and give it that title, right? So now it's a thing, the portfolio life. Now it sounds strategic and intentional, um, which I believe it is. But partially, this is also because I think it works for a lot of people. Maybe not everyone, but certainly as disruptions become more frequent, as diversification and flexibility become more and more valuable, I think there's a lot to commend a life that is built like a portfolio rather than a linear career, a linear life that says I'm going up and to the right and oops, something happened out of my control. And now the rug just got pulled out from under me. So I wrote this eh, for myself, but also for a whole bunch of people who seem to really resonate with this idea have been sending me emails asking for one-on-one time for years. And now I can point them to the book instead. So your own career, your human Venn diagram self. <laughs> yes. What put you in that position to feel like you had your hands in a lot of different things and maybe had to make sense out of it for other people? So I grew up in such a strange uh, family. You can sort of connect the dots in reverse, right? Steve Jobs used to say this, but I grew up in a family of women. My mom, my grandmother, my sister, my grandpa, he was building cars though. So he wasn't all that visible, but it was this family of women and we didn't have a lot of money. We had to be really scrappy, really gritty, really creative. And yet my grandmother who hardly graduated high school, she was one of 11 children, the daughter of a farmer. She had this obsession with us getting a great education and with studying music. She had always wanted to study music herself, never been able to. And so we ended up in a position to benefit from a lot of scholarships, a lot of investments that other people made into the community music program at Michigan State and other resources. So I grew up playing classical piano. I picked up cello in middle school. I've been singing classical voice my entire life. I've been in choirs and orchestras and chamber ensembles. I had this incredibly rich musical education combined with this love of obsession with math from the earliest days. And I never wanted to have to choose between them. And I kept being prompted of like, well, which path are you going to go down? And and for most of my life, I was like, why do I have to choose? Right. And then I discovered Leonardo da Vinci. I read about the Renaissance man. And I was like, haha, why should I have to choose? He never had to choose. Right. Of course, I'm comparing myself to da Vinci. <laughs> But I found that there had been precedent for this, that there had been these periods in human history where smashing together different industries and disciplines and skill sets and networks was actually a huge boon for creativity, for invention, for new ideas. 
rather than what felt like this really small structure of kind of the linear career path that you choose as like a teenager. So I really chafed against this from an early age. And I guess I was willing to work hard enough and hustle enough to be able to do all those things. I mean, it's a very busy life. If you decide you want to double major and triple minor, as I did in college, you gotta, you know, make the calendar work. But I don't know, I just I couldn't decide. And so I put off deciding as long as humanly possible. So did you actually do a Venn diagram for yourself? (laughs) I did. So this idea came out This was right after I'd graduated business school. I'd started my first company. It was in the fashion space called Quincy Apparel. And I was out there uh, fundraising. I was meeting investors and other entrepreneurs. And everyone sort of wants to like, tell me about yourself in like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I was like, look, if I start reciting my resume, it makes no sense. And that's not the point anyway. Like I have a a very specific vision and a, a strategy and... I come to the table with a lot to offer, but I come across as this like dilettante who can't focus if I just sort of like give you the and, 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 and. And so I was trying to figure out a way to introduce myself that came across as strategic and intentional as I was. And I was at this one particular fundraising event. I was probably three or four glasses of wine deep. And I just threw out this one liner and I said, oh, I'm a human Venn diagram. And the VC goes, oh, interdisciplinary. I kind of like that. Tell me more, which is the entire point of an introduction, right? You just want to earn the right to tell them more. And we ended up having this conversation. And I realized after that moment, I was like, oh, one of the things that I bring to the table is sitting at this intersection of different worlds. It's not just that I care about these different disciplines and skill sets. I also bring relationships, perspectives, insights from these different worlds, and I can cross-pollinate. That's part of the value I add to any room. And so this idea of a human Venn diagram gets across that intersection and that intentionality with like, you know, a funny, what is now very like memeable idea. Um, but yes, at the time I was drunk and used a math analogy for my introduction. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. And it's so funny because in On Brand, one of the first exercises that I ask the reader to do is to do a Venn diagram. Really? <laughs> yes. And I did it for myself for the purpose of this book, but I never did it previously. Mm. So I loved when I read your bio, I'm like, that is perfect. And I completely get it. You know, a lot of people get really uncomfortable having to explain the different facets of their work experience. Mm -hmm. And that VC sounded very smart in the sense of just like recognizing that it is value added, Mm -hmm. not something that needs to sort of be explained as like a misstep. Exactly. Well, and I think what's so interesting, I also have readers do a Venn diagram in the portfolio life. I love this. When you start to, you know, you draw out, you map out the different worlds that you inhabit, the skills, the networks, the communities that you come from, and you start to try to make sense of this. What I think the most powerful spots in those Venn diagrams are the overlaps. And one of the things that I really encourage my readers is As you're drawing these out, you might see spots where a particular interest overlaps with another and you're like, ah, that's where they intersect. 
And then there might be parts of your Venn diagram where you're like, but there's no overlap there. Like that intersection is currently blank. And I think that's an amazing like neon sign pointing to there's where you have opportunity. There is where an innovation or an intersection or something creative can come out of that. And you, by virtue of sitting in both worlds, you have access to those ideas. I love that. And you know, you paint such a clear picture, that empty white space. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. So you had some missteps, right? You had a startup that failed. (laughs) Yes. I'm the face of failure at Harvard Business School. We have a case study on the failure. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what happened and how that left you feeling at that point in your career. Sure. So my first company, we raised about a million dollars in venture capital. We got off to the races and we started building literally a women's apparel brand from scratch. And, you know, coming from the world that I came from in the arts, the Midwest, a working class family, a million dollars of investment sounds like a lot of money. But let me tell you, listeners, it is not. Especially in fashion, we weren't, you know, writing software where you can write lines of code for free and you're just paying for the talent. You have to pay for samples and for fabrics and you're buying space in your manufacturing, you know, lineup time. Like there's real inventory costs in the world of apparel and that million dollars, it went quick. And we had a number of missteps along the way. We were first-time founders. We were outsiders to the industry. And so we were learning by doing, which is very common in the startup world, but it's an expensive way of learning. And so we got to this point where we had identified some key issues in the business model, but we thought we had a plan to solve them. We had just run out of money. And there's a point where when you raise money for a company, it's almost worse to not raise enough money. Like you either have to raise enough to get as far as you need to, to prove a certain set of things. And then that earns you the right to raise more and keep going. Or you need to not like not do anything, right? Like not enough money is is kind of the worst of all outcomes. So we ran out of money. Literally, we like we were in the Wall Street Journal's fashion section the day before. <laughs> and then oh. we were out of money. I know it was so painful. We just had to shut down. And our customers loved it. <laughs> like that's I think the worst part of it is like we had a thing that people wanted, but the business itself could not survive. So I went home from you know the board meeting where we decided this thing wasn't gonna happen. We had to shut down. And I like I crawled into bed and I stayed there for like three weeks. I was so crushed. I was a little bit burnt out. I was a lot depressed. And it was this kind of face the music moment where I realized I had never failed at anything ever in my entire life. And I didn't know what to do because my internal narrative, the story I told myself about myself (laughs) was that I succeed. I can do anything. I'm creative. I can figure anything out. I'm smart. But ultimately, I succeed. And this, this was data to the contrary. And I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know who I was or what I had to offer or how to get back on my feet. I felt paralyzed. And so I watched all seven seasons of The West Wing from top (laughs) to bottom instead of dealing with reality. I think that was a good move. I think that was a smart (laughs) I mean, there's only so many times you can hear 
President Bartlett say, what's next? Before at some point you have to say to yourself, okay, what's next? Right. And at the end of those seven seasons, it took about three weeks. I took a shower. I ate some vegetables. And I was like, okay, I got to figure out who I am and what I want to do next. And I emailed everyone in my network and said, will you get coffee? Also, you have to pay for the coffee because I'm broke. But I need your help in figuring out who I am, what I should do, and like what I have to offer the world. In retrospect, this was a brilliant move of like, when you can't get the answers by self-reflecting, go outside and crowdsource, get your people to tell you. But in the moment, it was just like, I have no other moves. So I'm just going to have to do this. But you were strategic because you did decide that you were going to have 70 coffee chats in 30 days. Well, I didn't expect everyone to say yes. So that was the good news. (laughs) So 70 coffee chats in 30 days. That's a lot of coffee. That's like networking on steroids. Yes. When you were done with those 30 days, what did you learn about yourself? I learned a couple of things. One was that I am a pretty consistent human. I had talked with all these people, some that I had only known in this chapter of my life as a founder, some that I had known for a decade across other chapters of my life when I was a theater director and when I was a musician. And they all kind of said the same thing. I asked them all the same three questions. So that helped a little bit. I structured these conversations. I asked them, when have you seen me happiest? Because currently I'm not happy and I can't remember ever being happy and I need help remembering what that meant. And they said, love that question. when you're in charge of your calendar, you are happiest when you are in charge of your calendar. Wait, that's so funny. Like, when would you not be in charge of your calendar? So for one very long year of my life, I worked in client services with the Boston Consulting Group. And I was working crazy hours, but specifically whenever they decided I needed to be working those crazy hours. So I would say yes to go to a friend's wedding. And then at the last second, they'd be like, no, you got to cancel. You got to stick around and do this analysis. Or I would say like, yes to going on a date. And they'd be like, "Uh, actually, we need you to be in Houston that night, right? Like, I'm not afraid of working hard. I work hard, but I want to be in control of when and how I slot those things in. And I realized that in that moment, anything involving client services not going to be a fit for my personality. What is better than ruling something out though? Absolutely, right? I was like, whoa, okay, that's helpful. Then I asked them, what do you come to me for? When in the back of your head, you're like, you know what? I should go ask Christina about this. And they roughly all said the same thing. They come to me when they need help finding the story. When they're trying to connect the dots of whether it's their resume or a new product launch or they're a writer and they can't find their way through, like when they're looking for what is the story, I'm like, oh, boom, boom, boom. Here's the big arc and here's the evidence that supports that. And they're like, whoa. And then I ask them, where do I stand out against my peers? So like, what do I do that maybe feels easy for me, but I don't realize it's kind of a superpower. And they said, it's the zero to two stage of a new idea. Like, I'm okay from 2 to 10. I'm really not that great from 10 to 100. I am exceptional at 0 to 2. Wow. Like, new idea. Okay, let's get some structure around it. What resources do we have? What resources do we need? What talent? How do we break this into steps? How do we prioritize and triage? Okay, boom. Boots on the ground. Let's go. And I was like, okay, this is really interesting feedback. Because what it tells me 
is that I need to stay in early stage startups. I had been thinking maybe I should go back to big companies. Like, I don't know. I try to start up and it failed. And they're like, no, no, no. You're great at that early stage. Just maybe join someone else's startup for a little while. Right. And that that story piece, like I should either go into a marketing role or I should go and be like a product manager launching a new product for an existing customer or a new geography, something like that. And that crucially being in charge of my calendar meant I needed to be in charge. I needed to be like a general manager role or like the VP of a function. I didn't want to go in as like a cog in a much bigger machine. And so I came out of these conversations with a really clear structure for a job search. And once I knew exactly what I was asking for, I got a job like four days later at an early stage startup based in Boston, looking to expand into New York City, and they needed a general manager to run the New York office. I mean, that's the best story ever. (laughs) I love the process of it. That advice is going to be so helpful to everyone listening because it is hard to pick a lane sometimes. It is, especially when you know you could be in many lanes. And one of the things that I think is really helpful is it's not about like, I could be everywhere. It's sort of like, well, where do you want to be next for the next chapter of your life? Yes. One of the pressure points that I think a lot of young recent grads in their 20s feel when I talk to them is sort of like, I don't know who I'm going to be. And I'm like, uh, eventually, like, neither do I. I don't know who I'm going to be at 60. Who knows? So really, it's like, well, who do you want to be next year for the next 12 to 18 months? What do you want to learn? Who do you want to learn it from? In what context do you want to learn it? And like, try it on for a season. And what you will probably learn, especially in those first few jobs in your 20s, is what you don't want. (laughs) And that's okay. It's a lot like dating. You learn what you don't want. And that helps you become crystal clear on what you do want. And all of those experiences add up to figuring out where you fit and what you can add uniquely to the world. How did you structure this book? I did it in three parts. I wanted it to be really, really hands-on and practical. So part one is the theory. It's the why. It's how we got here. In particular, the first chapter is meant for you to like rip it out and hand it to your parents or your manager or anyone a full generation older than you who's saying like, well, you know, I think you should pick a lane and focus and take everything off your resume that is, you know, a non sequitur and just be buttoned up and build that ladder up into the right, like climb that ladder, become the CEO. That's not how the world works anymore. And I love them. I appreciate their interest in helping young folks, but that advice is outdated. So it's a little bit of how did we get here? And why does everything feel just a little bit impossible at this point in the world? And why this is a systemic problem and not any individual person's failure at figuring out their lives. So it's why slash like, how did we get here? Part two is straight up a hands-on workshop with me. Imagine you ask me for one-on-one coaching and we're going to go through the process of figuring out what's in your Venn diagram. How do you put together a business model for your life? And what are the elements that you need and the dreams and the wishes that you want to go after as part of your portfolio? And then part three is how do you operationalize it? It's literally a mini MBA. Every chapter is like, think about your team like a CEO would. Think about your story like a CMO would. 
Think about your money like a CFO would. And we put together the actual really tactical stuff of, okay, you want this life. How does it work? I love that. So would you say the reader that you're thinking of initially for this book is an entrepreneur or is it also for corporate people? Honestly, I think these ideas work for everybody faced with the constant slate of disruption that we're seeing in 2023. I wrote it with a specific reader in mind, though, and that is someone in their 20s and 30s who has reached their sort of quarter life, early midlife crisis of, I have been following the rules and it's not effing working. (laughs) I'm exhausted. (laughs) I have no time to date or I have a family and I never get to see them. I'm still paying off student loans. I can't freaking afford a house. I keep saying yes to unpaid overtime hasn't turned into promotions or it has turned into a promotion in title, but (laughs) I'm not getting any extra money. All I'm getting is like not laid off at the next round of layoffs, right? Like there's this frustration, I think for a lot of folks in their twenties and thirties of like, I followed the rules and honestly, I'm not sure if this game is worth playing. And I, especially post pandemic, are ready to have a different relationship with work and a different mindset for my life. So that's the reader I have in mind, but it absolutely works in corporate. It works for older folks. I have a number of folks in their late fifties that are thinking about the impending retirement. And they're like, I'm not ready to go like sit on a beach in Boca and drink things with umbrellas. Like I have a lot to offer. I just don't want to be in the C-suite anymore. So what do I think about next? And that's really the framework of the portfolio life. Your life is a portfolio just like your financial portfolio. And you have different things in that portfolio, hobbies, work, side hustles, relationships, your investments in your health, yourself, your rest, your family. All of these things holistically take up 100% of your day, your life. And it's How do you design what that mix is for the chapter you're in? And then how do you redesign it, rebalance that portfolio when that chapter changes, when that season of life changes? So there might be times where you are all in working 18-hour days, and that might be what's required of the life you want. And then, like me, you have a kid or two, and you're like, honestly, I need something different right now. I became a professor because I had two little kids and I want to be able to go pick them up when they have a sniffly nose at two o'clock, which happens a lot. I am really frustrated to say. (laughs) So it's really about that balance and that choice and how you design the mix of what makes up your life. So well said. So well done, Christina. Not surprised. (laughs) Talk about the overachiever mindset. Oh, so there is literally a section of my book that says, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) Because I was going to say, you definitely are an overachiever. Because I am 100% an overachiever. No, it's in the chapter on time management. And so one of the things I did in that last third of the book was I went and pulled out some of the most relevant research from each of these different disciplines and tried to look at how this applies to how we manage our lives the same way you would if you were in the C-suite, if you were the CEO of a business. So it is very entrepreneurial. But I think in 2023, that's what 
the world demands of us, right? You think it's safe to take a day job at someone else's company and then what they put their money in the wrong bank and all of a sudden you're on like, that's not safe. It's not safe. So if we're going to just recognize that everything is a little bit scary and risky, then putting yourself in the CEO's job to manage your life actually de-risks some of those complications. So there's a chapter on time management, and I pulled into the research from operations management. And there's this idea, the best run top performing manufacturing lines operate at 85% capacity. So they intentionally design downtime into their system, shifts that are not scheduled, times where these machines are not being used for three reasons. One, because scheduled maintenance is way cheaper than unscheduled maintenance. Think about your car, right? Like you don't take it in for the oil changes. Pretty soon you get to take it in for a new transmission. So scheduling in downtime intentionally to say we have to tune things up fix them, all of those things, cheaper than unscheduled. Number two, it leaves capacity for the surges. There will be periods where the average will peak and suddenly you get a period of the year. Think about like the crazy crush of the winter holiday, you know, retail rush. Mm -hmm. There are these surges. If you book to 100% capacity, there's no room for surges. And the last one is for do-overs. Sometimes you make mistakes. And if you don't leave space to fix them, you either have to ship mistakes or you have to screw over other people, other orders, other things in order to be able to redo them. So it's an acknowledgement of maintenance, of mistakes, and of the choice to surge up and meet demand when it comes. And I love this framework because I am absolutely someone who schedules my life at 110% capacity. Like I am, I am and I acknowledge it. These are the overachievers among us. And, you know, there's that entire mindset in startup culture of like, give it 110, 120%. And that's just not realistic on the day-to-day basis. This is why we're burning out. We have been in the last three years operating in a surge capacity through the pandemic, but we were already burned out before the pandemic hit. So there is a point where you have to stop and make space. And part of this model insists on you designing in rest and time with your community, your family, your friends, your relationships as an intentional part of your portfolio. Because rest is a requirement, not a reward. And I literally had my mother cross-stitch that phrase and I have put it on my wall because I know it, but I haven't yet internalized it. That's one of those things that do as I say, not as I do. Well, maybe you need to reread your book. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. I mean, it makes so much sense when you lay it out. But for certain people, our natures, I mean, I'm the same as you, so I can say, like, our natures don't allow for that framework to exist. Mm -hmm. So it's a discipline we have to kind of strive for. 
Well, and it's something that you also have to unpack and figure out why, right? Like this is straight up why everyone needs a therapist. Like I know part of why I say yes to everything is from the scarcity mindset of like, well, if I say no, they'll never come back. They'll never give me another shot. They won't respect that I needed to say no now, but I'm still interested in working with them later. It also comes from a place of like, I grew up without a lot of money. I've been hustling from the earliest ages. And this notion that like, I might have enough now, like I might have enough. Enough is a really hard thing to grasp, but I might have enough. And that space, rest, downtime, leisure is worth investing in rather than saying yes to yet another project, gig, book. (laughs) It's like, this is where having a good understanding of your psyche and what drives you becomes really important. Yeah. And I think is a big part of what we're all feeling when we feel like the rug can get ripped out from under us at any point. This is not an unfair feeling. This is how the world has absolutely taught us to behave in the last few decades. And so it it makes a lot of sense that we're reacting this way. I have a lot of empathy for people like you and me who are the overachievers. And it's something we can learn to manage. Well, it's interesting because as I'm hearing you explain this, I realize we actually are different in the way that we sort of act out our overachieverness. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't say yes to everything. I actually have no issue saying no at all. And I always have a theme and my theme for 2023 is impact. So I weigh things to say like, okay, if I'm going to do that. What's the impact? Because what I don't need to do is just feel busy for the sake of feeling busy. Amazing. That's a positive. The negative is that I never quite feel finished with anything. I not only that, I need to do multiple things at one time. Mm -hmm. I am a huge human example of a portfolio life because I'm not happy doing one thing. And I get that. I love having multiple balls in the air and it makes a ton of sense. There are periods where one might be at a lull and that's okay. You've got something else you can go work on. The challenge there is that there is literally never any downtime. Like you have built in, (laughs) by definition, you have built into the structure where there's never a period where you say, you know what, I'm going to just go offline for a week because it's easy because there's a break between these things. And then, and then if you have a life partner who also manages their schedule this way, imagine trying to get both of your schedules to line up without being super intentional about it would not happen it would not happen and so that leads to this choice this design intentionality that says we are going to block a week or two or five into our schedule we're going to book it like it's a project but that's going to be vacation that's going to be the sabbatical that i've earned that's going to be our downtime and i'm going to honor it just like I would any other thing that I'm committing to, because without that intentionality, it will literally never just happen for you. I definitely need to do that for sure. When the book (laughs) launch is over, sure, I'll do that. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Literally for the last year and a half, I've said like, oh, things will calm down next week. They won't. For a year and a half. I mean, it's been like for my whole life, but specifically this last sprint has been a year and a half. (laughs) When you were done writing The Portfolio Life, was there something that surprised you about you? Oh. Like, you know yourself so well, but when you're 
putting pen to paper yeah. and you're giving out all this incredible advice, was there something you were like, oh, wait, I actually don't do that or I actually do that? The thing that surprised me the most is that I'm kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't know that? I don't know. I wrote it from top to bottom and I didn't really go back until, you know, I would do each section and send it to my editor and she'd send me back notes. And then I would go back and reread things that I'd written maybe five, six months earlier and I'd taken a break from. And I'd be laughing and I was like, that was good. (laughs) You're so cute. That's a fun little footnote. And then, you know, I did the audio book and I got the chance to read some of these things. And it was like that all over again. I was like, ha. Oh, good. It's not a dry read, which means people will actually read it and like do it. That's my hope. Anyone who thinks that this is like a serious business book from a Harvard professor will be disappointed because I am not a serious like PhD Harvard professor. I am a practitioner who built companies and found my way into an opportunity to teach at the business school at Harvard. But I am fundamentally a doer. And I'm going to tell you stories. There's a lot of me in this book. There's a lot of my family and my wishes and dreams. There's even a section (laughs) where I'm outlining this tool that I use at the end of every year called the personal balance scorecard. And I give you an example from one of mine. And you know what? There's some pretty personal goals in there, like learning the entire score of Hamilton. Not that I'll ever be cast, but I'm available. (laughs) Well, you know what? We're putting it out into the world. I'll leave your marks. So that's very good to know. So you teach entrepreneurship and marketing at Harvard Business School. Yes. How are you preparing those students for today in those realms? I know that's a really big question, but like mm-hmm. in a nutshell, what are you trying to instill in them? Because obviously they're smart. So we got that down. Yeah. That. But like marketing and entrepreneurship is very different than when it was a year ago. This world changes so quickly. And I think the number one thing that we try to get across is this notion of you cannot have all of the answers before the moment that you have to make a decision. And it's hard for people who like lots of data, who are really smart, who want to do the analysis and mark up the whiteboards and put together the deck and think really hard about a problem. That works in a world where you know all the variables. But in entrepreneurship, you're lucky if you know a handful of them. And so in the absence of that certainty, how can you still have structure and rigor and process so that you're not just like throwing spaghetti to see what sticks on the wall? And so it's this idea of hypothesis-driven entrepreneurship. How can you put a stake in the ground and say, I think this is true. I think this is my customer. I think they need this. I think this is the solution that will meet those unmet needs. And then how can you run really cheap, fast experiments to get directional data? Yes, we're on the right path. No, no one seems to be clicking. And then iterate. So how can you learn fast, close that learning cycle to be as quick as possible, as cheap as possible, so that you're putting little things out in the world testing how they're responded to, and you iterate from there. We say that if you wait until you put something out that you're not embarrassed by, you've waited too long. So get something out there, get that first reaction. You know, it's not unlike my first world of theater, where when you're in previews for a new show, you put it up in front of an audience. And if no one laughs, you're like, well, 
got to fix it tomorrow in rehearsal. And then we'll see what tomorrow's audience has to say, right? It's learning that process, that approach to it. And certainly on the marketing side, it's literally the same. How can you be data-driven? Yes, but also stay as close to your customers as possible and learn and build alongside them to meet their needs. Such great advice and the perfect note to end on. Last question, always the same. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? I want to leave my mark by helping people who didn't think they had the right to build something, to be in this world, to step out and be anything more than like the granddaughter of a farmer in the middle of Michigan, to have access and knowledge and permission to go do it. Well, I feel like this book is going to help so many people and more than help them. I think that you're touching upon something that's so relatable right now. Mm. I think it's going to give people a breath of fresh air to say like, you know what? I'm actually in a good place. Like this book is going to give people permission to sort of be that multi-hyphenate or not fit into any one box perfectly Mm -hmm. because it's great to sort of be eclectic in that sense. So Absolutely. Congratulations, Christina. Thank you. And I loved having you on with your mark. It has been my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? Don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.